Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me across this great land of ours, it's my land, it's your land, it's his land, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rich. I'm back to the land of no humidity. Uh, you must uh, feel absolutely terrible, um, the fact that you can wear a shirt for multiple hours at a time uh, without it being a rag. Yeah, I know. So we got a uh, full show, lots of fun stuff here. I think we're going to start out, though. Tom, you were at Cisco Live uh, United States uh, last week. And uh, mm -hmm. from what I was told, a packed show. We did a Tech Field Day uh, Extra out there. Seems like that was uh, good stuff. We got video up for that. But Cisco news uh, in the news this week. Not surprising, I guess. Uh, we have the acquisition of July Systems by Cisco. Uh, this was announced, uh, terms were not disclosed, but, uh, July system has been around since about 2001 and, uh, you know, uh, HP using, or I'm sorry, Cisco using some of that, uh, 67 billion, I think in cash on hand or something like that. Ridiculous. Uh, the company uses Wi-Fi infrastructure to track customers in retail environments as part of a broader customer experience management play. Uh, Tom, uh, I I'm interested what you think Cisco is specifically acquiring here. Is it getting into that uh, customer experience market or, or refining their offerings there? Is this uh, uh, just a, a wider mobility play? The, the first thing that kind of came to my mind seeing this was some of the stuff that I've seen from Cape Networks. I uh, was originally acquired by, acquired by HPE. Is this an attempt to ward that off or is this something different? So this feels a lot like, um, so for those of you who don't know, CMX is, is the indoor location tracking system. It's very similar to Aruba's Meridian platform. Um, and they've been building a lot on it. Uh, we've had a lot of great presentations from Daryl Sladden at Tech Field Day about what CMX is capable of doing. I mean, they do some crazy stuff. They put like halos around the big Cisco APs that can give you like one meter resolution and, and all this location tracking stuff. Um, but they had outsourced a part of the core. So it's my understanding that July Systems actually developed the CMX Engage add-on. The, the CMX core itself was developed internally to Cisco. So this feels a lot like a talent acquisition. We're going to buy your product. We're going to buy your team, you know, because we're already buying your product, basically. We're buying your team to develop all this in-house to kind of get a little bit more cohesion between the groups that are working on it. Um, as one of my friends, uh, Scott McDermott, said, CMX competes with Cisco Prime to be um, the biggest Cisco product that you don't know what all the pieces are. <laughs> um, CMX is, is huge, and that's one of the reasons why um, they're developing so much uh, across it is because location, mm, excuse me, location tracking for retail organizations and really for a lot of organizations is a huge thing because there's a lot of data-driven uh, computing that happens there. And so, you know, as we've heard, data is the new oil, nuclear, power, solar thing, and so people want access to that. Wait, what's interesting to me is you know, kind of the first. Uh, awareness I had of this kind of, you know, kind of mobility tracking in a retail environment actually came from Apple with their iBeacon stuff. I think they rolled out in like mm -hmm. iOS 7 or something like that. And, and now it's very interesting. Do you, do you see that though, that there's, whenever I see a big company acquire a piece from a prominent, or maybe not even a prominent partner, but a very tightly involved partner, does this have any kind of chilling effect in this customer management space anyone that would be competing with July Systems now all of a sudden is competing with Cisco, which is a totally different you know, kind of animal? Well, it really comes down to two things. Um, one, do you think what you're, you're creating is novel and unique and therefore you're going to have a market? And two, are you just hoping to get bought? Because a lot of those smaller startups are really their talent that 
spun out of a bigger company like a Cisco or an EMC, Dell, um, HPE, and they built a thing that they wanted to build with a little bit of seed money with the acquisition hope that Cisco is going to come back and say, okay, guess what? Um, we love what you're doing. You built a really awesome thing. We didn't have to go through traditional R&D channels. Here's a pile of cash. Come hang out with us back in your old office. Um, that's been a model for years. All right. Well, in uh, more malicious news, Tom, uh, something interesting coming out of Docker Hub. Researchers found that 17 malicious images on Docker Hub were mining the Monero cryptocurrency in the background. Yay. The images were downloaded over 5 million times uh, over the course of 10 months, generating, uh, looking at the the uh, the public key for the wallet, uh, about $90,000 worth of Monero, um, which really over the course of 10 months and 5 million downloads, Honestly, like it shows you like the the digital pennies or hay pennies that you're getting for this kind of mining. Still not an inconsiderable amount of money. The really significant thing here for me, because I, I feel like we're going to be seeing this anywhere that there's any script running, anywhere that there's any compute, someone's going to be trying to do Monero or whatever the next non-ASIC optimized cryptocurrency is. They're going to be putting it on there. What's really interesting about the story to me is that complaints about the files began in uh, September 2017. And... Uh, from that point, I believe in January and May, there were subsequent uh, security warnings from Sysdig and Fortinet uh, to Docker Hub saying, hey, these files are bad. They're, they're like telling them literally they're mining cryptocurrency. Please take them down. Uh, and we're only taken down uh, just recently, a full eight months after the initial complaint. Not a great look for Docker here, Tom. I mean, is this just a case of an organization or, or a community that's not equipped for this kind of rapid takedown or, or assuming that everything is, is not going to be malicious in this way? You know, it's funny. I, I feel like what you've got is you've got a situation where Docker kind of wanted to keep their paws off of things. Like, you know, because we see that a lot with companies it's like, oh, well, let's let's get in there and try to figure out what you guys are working on and let's help you out with that. No, no, no. Docker just said we want to we want to hands off. We want the community grow organically. And of course, everywhere you're going to have people who are going to try to exploit and try to get that last little tweak in that they can to, to get a little more for what they put in. And that's really what this is. And, and maybe Docker was just waiting to be absolutely certain that these things were malicious before they yanked it because they didn't want to get sued because they didn't want to have, you know, somebody coming back on them saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, I, I honestly, as speaking from the business side, I can't fault Docker for taking a long time. Um, man, if they just let it run for another couple of days, they, they could have had 50 more cents to buy a Coke. <laughs> yeah, it, and it makes you wonder if, if anyone's ever going to actually, you know, access those funds or anything like that. Uh, it's funny, um, I believe it was uh, Alex Ellis who uh, developed uh, OpenFast uh, mm -hmm. has like a has a function to kind of mine Monero and, and all sorts of uh you know, container-based functions like that, I could very easily, like like the process to do this is very simple because the whole reason you're you're pulling those images is because you're like, ah, I want someone else to do the hard work. It would just be super easy to do this. I, I'm wondering, yeah, how you manage, hey, we want to make this a marketplace. We want to make this an open forum for, for all this great stuff um, with, um, hey, we have some sort of responsibility. But yeah, it, it uh, just kind of interesting there. I mean, eight months though is, it's not good. It's not good. No. All right, Tom, how much, uh, do you like uh, supercomputer news, Tom? Always. Well, you're going to be excited here because HPE unveiled Astra, the world's largest ARM-based supercomputer. Mwahaha Thunderbolt sounds. Uh, Astra will include 5,184 Cavium Thunder X2 processors, each with 28 cores running at 2 gigahertz. And if I had done some math, I could tell you how many total cores that would be. 
Uh, a lot, I believe, is the uh, consensus. This will uh, put it around 2.3 peak petaflops of performance. So not uh, it's not going to be the fastest supercomputer out there. Um, it's not even going to crack the top 10, but it will solidly be in the 100, I'm imagining, with the ARM architecture relatively efficient at that level. Uh, the plan is for it to be used by the U.S. Department of Energy for national security, energy, science, and healthcare modeling and simulations. Uh, you know, the, the, every time I hear, you know, arm in an enterprise context, it's when is it coming? When is the arm server? When is arm in the data center going to be a thing? But maybe the, the way in is, uh, through high performance computing kind of back in that way. Yeah, that's really what this is. I, I have to start with the obligatory quote from one of my favorite movie hackers. Um, risk architecture is going to change everything. <laughs> Sorry. You got, you got to nail that everything. Now, I, I wish I had some text flowing over my face from my computer monitor. I know, right? Um, risk risk architecture on ARM, that whole thing, you're right. You, honestly, you are not going to be using a laptop with an ARM processor in the next five years. You are not going to be using a server that you bought with an ARM processor running things. You know why? Code recompiles. Remember the Windows Surface RT tablet, that iPad competitor that nobody bought? Why did nobody buy it? She had to recompile all your code to run on it. Nobody wants to buy a Windows box that doesn't run Windows apps. But for high-performance compute, you have to break those software programs down into component pieces in order to heavily optimize them. I recorded a podcast with uh, Gina Rosenthal at VMware during Dell Tech World, and we were talking about like you know the kinds of things that you can do when you are running HPC clusters with GPU attachments and things like that. But it all comes down to one thing. You can't just buy an off-the-shelf software package and expect it to work there. You have to refactor, recompile, re-everything your code. That's where ARM is going to make a lot of inroads. And so what'll happen is you'll start seeing like supercompute clusters as a service. That's where ARM's revolution is going to happen. It's going to be like Linux. You won't see it happen until it's too late. I do also think that this could have some interesting implications uh, way down the road. If composable infrastructure ever takes off, the ability to have tons of little tiny processors that you can throw at stuff and, and directly to your point, you know, to be able to put together that supercomputing cluster with the exact number of cores and the exact number of everything that you want uh, is, is a pretty powerful offering. Um, and could be very interesting. The other note um, I wanted to put out here, you know, this is a Cavium processor. While you were out, Tom, there was news, though, that HP, or I'm sorry, Qualcomm rebutted uh, that they are getting out of the server chip business. So hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll be seeing a little bit of competition. I mean, that's that's kind of my problem with the feasibility of ARM in the data center, ARM as an HPC. It's You just have a super limited number of companies that can put the R&D into those chips. I mean, you have obviously mm -hmm. ARM designing them, but you need some super specific modification or, or some uh, engineering on top of that to make it applicable either in a data center, HPC, that kind of stuff. And really, you need competition to draw out, you know, kind of the best of that. So, um mm -hmm interesting i'm glad uh we have some competition out there I, obviously there are other arm supercomputers i mean you could throw together a raspberry pi cluster if you uh, really want uh and you have uh, you know 35 dollars times n uh amount of money to spend you can you can certainly put that together but uh really interesting stuff other interesting stuff tom how do you feel about privacy uh not at liberty to discuss that thank you <laughs> Well, the White House has some thoughts on it, kind of inspired by GDPR in a cool report out by Axios, a scoop they're calling it. Some would call it exclusive. 
but they are reporting that the White House is working on what a federal approach to online pri- privacy should look like. It's being headed by a special assistant to the president, Gail Slater, and she has reportedly met with industry groups on the topic. The report speculates that this could inform an executive order that would direct uh, an unspecified agency to develop a privacy policy framework, uh, similar to how President Obama did his cybersecurity order in 2013. Slater has previously stated that giving customers more control and access over data are good principles of GDPR. Yay! But the right to be forgotten may not work in U.S. law. Uh, so, Tom, interesting that you know GDPR has kind of been the specter that's uh, haunting IT over the past two years. We're we're living in this world now. I mean, we've had the first billion lawsuits uh, kind of come out of Europe on that. Uh, that's going to find its way through the courts and how the ramifications of that will go through. But I think the overall message is we're managing to muddle through this. Not surprising that the U.S. seems to be coming, uh, proposing, at least working on softer regulations. Uh, there was some concern that, you know, small businesses might not be able to cope with the requirements uh, of a GDPR-like uh, stringent privacy policy uh, or privacy um, framework uh, in the U.S. Uh, I'm interested, though, th- does this seem like a good first step? Is this feasible? I mean, my only concern is with an executive order, this has no staying power beyond this presidential term. Yeah, what we need to start the conversation. And, and we need to start it because GDPR is kicking everybody's butt in a good way, because it's forcing us to have hard conversations about where our data is going, where our data ends up, and how we get rid of it. And by having those hard conversations, by working with companies like Facebook and Apple and Google and whoever to implement GDPR regulations, if we can model something that we're doing after that, and it's going to be softer because we're a lot more corporate friendly over here than they are over in Europe, um, it will at least give us the opportunity to inform that conversation. And you're right, an executive order can always be overturned by someone's successor. And we, as, as we've seen over the course of the last 10 or 12 years, executive orders almost always get overturned if the person who takes the office afterwards is of the opposing political party. But the good news is, is that if we keep this as an executive branch function, and then the executive branch pushes the legislative branch to pass regulations, then we can enshrine it in law because what we definitely don't want is another net neutrality snafu where the FCC, which at some points in its career has even been more partisan than every other part of the government, suddenly randomly decides, well, guess what? We want everybody to not be private anymore. <laughs> and we we can't have that because this, I mean, when you look at GDPR, let's just assume for the moment that GDPR disappears tomorrow. Someone rules it you know, illegal or whatever untangling everything we've already done about GDPR for the last year and a half is going to be a mountain of work. So you've got to get it right the first time. Yeah. And, um, you know, not, not that I'm saying I'm, I'm glad they're leading with talking to industry groups, but you know, if, if there's was one complaint about GDPR, it was that it was perhaps a purely legislative uh, uh, work and that the, you know, there was no consideration for technically like, Hey, is this possible? Like if we have a bunch of stuff on tape, um, you could argue that brought about a lot of innovation. That's brought about a lot of startup capital for data visibility companies and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it'll be, I I'm encouraged that we're at least having this conversation. I just hope it's not going to be lip service or it's going to be actionable. You know, the, the 
kind of the the walk back from the right to be forgotten is a little concerning. It also will be interesting to see how that plays out with individual states that are doing this. California mm-hmm. is reportedly, you know, kind of mulling over some some pretty uh, uh, powerful uh, data uh, data rights kind of legislation. So how that will shape up, how those two laws will interplay, whether there will be some conflict, I can't imagine that, given the state of politics in the United States uh, today, that it would lead to any kind of uh, uh, controversy or conflict at all. Uh, sarcasm, Mark, but uh, we will see how it plays out. And you're right. The conversation, I guess, is what's important. Uh, speaking of conversations, Tom, you mentioned net neutrality. Um Let's talk about uh, how it inevitably ends. Uh, we just uh, received word this week that the AT&T and Time Warner cable, or I'm sorry, Time Warner, I put TWC, I guess it's Time Warner uh, merger has been approved. Judge Richard Leon of the U.S. District Court ruled that AT&T and Time Warner can merge over the antitrust objections of the Department of Justice or DOJ. Notably, the judge did not impose any conditions on the merger, uh, which seems crazy <laughs> to me. <laughs> As an aside, uh, in the decision, uh, it's notable that the government did not take any argument that AT&T will use its network to prioritize Time Warner content and or services. Um, Tom, let let me just propose to you the two uh, poles of the spectrum here. On the one hand, full dystopia. uh, Is this the acceleration of the inevitable merging away of net neutrality as a principle as everybody acquires content and prioritizes it on their own pipes? Uh, or, uh, you know, is this, hey, we like money, um, but we're not going to screw up the Internet, I guess. And I guess more importantly than that, because it's going to lead to dystopia. How does this impact as a consumer? I can see this impacting me. OK, my Netflix is going to get more expensive or worse. Right. That's like the classic argument or whatever. Or Netflix is less profitable and, you know, isn't a company anymore in 10 years because they can't make the economics work having to pay a fee on top of AT&T's network, whatever. But, you know, does this have any impact if, if I'm, uh, you know, a CTO or I'm a network engineer? What impact does that have, uh, you know, kind of on the enterprise day-to-day level? You know, it's funny because this this feels a lot more aimed at residential. Like, this is the last mile for cable providers. Which, by the way, I live in an area where there are only two providers, one of which is AT&T. If AT&T bought the other provider, I'd be SOL before you knew it. Um, the other thing is this is about competing for eyes on things in cable boxes, in, you know, um, systems like that in, in digital print. I mean, when you look at the number of things that AT&T is going to get their fingers in after this is all said and done with uh, the way that they're getting around the net neutrality argument is they're not saying we're going to prioritize other, other traffic, but they're using the magic term zero rating. So guess what? Now, if you want to watch direct TV, on your iPhone, it doesn't cost you any data plan. Or if you have a Time Warner cable app, it won't count against your data plan. And when people hear zero rating, they think, oh, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, you understand how zero rating works. They have to identify your traffic, blah, blah, blah. Um, This right now doesn't have a huge impact on enterprises, unless you were maybe using Time Warner Business for your your cable provider, for for a broadband connection. it's it's definitely consumer focused and and i just it baffles my mind that the judge ruled in their favor and less than 24 hours later they had completed the acquisition it's like the paperwork was already filled out with the signatures on it and they were waiting for the judge to give the okay before they filed it It, that's yeah i mean if nothing else i mean if you look at something like I mean, we've seen some, we've talked about many mergers on this. There's always, hey, we're going to spin this out because it's, you know, it's either redundant or 
okay, this, you know, we would have too much monopoly or it just doesn't make sense, yeah. whatever. I mean, you, you look at the, uh, uh, the Broadcom brocade acquisition, for God's sake. I mean, that took nine years to do and nine different companies got spun out and bought and, and repurposed and stuff like that. To have these two giants kind of come together and be like, we're like just no conditions at all. Seems that's weird. like the Seems that's weird. the Vegas quickie wedding of mergers. Like I've never <laughs> seen one happen this fast. I mean, it 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 does make me nostalgic uh, for the the days of the Qualcomm Broadcom uh, uh, acquisition that never happened. You know, I mean, was it a soap opera? Yeah, but did I tune in every week? Of course, that's not how soap operas work. They're daily, of course, but uh, my metaphors are clumsy at best. Well, Tom, um, I hope uh, we enjoy the internet dystopia that's going to be coming. Uh, I at least have three providers by me, although I think one's DSL, so it doesn't even really count. Uh, so um, if I'm not able to do the show in the future, it's because all competition is dead. And uh, I'll snail mail you um, my video of this, and you can sync it up um, with what I'm assuming will be very lucid points. But thanks, everyone, for watching the Gestalt IT Rundown. We're here every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, don't turn in uh, at 12.30 if you live on the West Coast, uh, we'll have been over for some time. Or wait, yes, that's how it works. Uh, but you can always find us on Facebook. Uh, we put the video up there as well. After the fact, YouTube, uh, just search for Gestalt IT on YouTube. We post these on there as well. And if you are into the audio, we do this as a podcast. Just search for uh, the, uh, uh, oh, geez, I forgot the Gestalt IT Rundown. I was thinking the other name of our podcast, the on-premise IT Roundtable. Uh, just search for Gestalt IT Rundown. In your podcatcher of choice, you will find it. We're on the newly launched uh, Google Podcast app. If you're into that and you're an Android user, check that out. You can also find us on gestaltit.com. Me and Tom are always writing there. Tom is at Networking Nerd on Twitter. I am at Mr. Anthropology, MR Anthropology. Tom, anything else you want to inform our fine readers about? Uh, no, I think we're trucking right along. We've got some great stuff coming up. I've got some great articles coming out. In fact, I have one about uh, a recent announcement from Aruba. So if you want to head over to Gestalt IT and check it out, um, it's great content headed your way. That's right. We'll be back next week. So until then, have a super sparkly day. <laughs>